Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 486. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows in the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week, I'm extremely excited to announce that my podcast, this podcast, has been accepted or identified as a top 50 podcast for leadership by the People Hum Leaders Hum Network. I'm also chuffed to have received another five-star review on Apple Podcasts from Mit Mit L. Thank you. So this week's interview is with Dr. Grin Lord. Bryn is a licensed clinical psychologist based in Bellevue, Washington. She's also a repeat entrepreneur and a pioneer in all things empathy and AI. She was the first employee at Listen, using AI to help wellness and behavioral health providers improve the quality of service and outcomes, and has worked at Uper and founded the community Therapists in Tech. Grin's now founder and CEO of Empathic.ai, and that's without an E at the beginning, helping people and organizations develop skills for greater understanding, compassion, and insight via AI-powered analytics, correction, and training of empathy. In this conversation with Grin, we explore her journey. What is empathy? How to measure it? The evolutions of empathy in tech and AI specifically. And her startup, of course, Empathic AI. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And please do consider dropping your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Dr. Grin Lord, what a fabulous name and what a fabulous person to have on my podcast. You and I have crossed paths uh, as fellow empathy activists, and more particularly, you have some uh, long-in-the-tooth knowledge and work in empathy and AI. In your own words, Grin, who are you? Who am I? Wow. Uh, so I'm a clinical psychologist by training and a research scientist. And it's only been since um, I'd say the last 15 years that I've really focused on translating a lot of that knowledge into to AI. So um, I have a rich clinical background as well. Um, but I think for me, uh, a lot of my research, even before I went into AI was all about reach and like dissemination, like how many people can get access to some of these tools or skills or things that we know about. And AI was a natural evolution of that for me, moving from dissemination and effectiveness research into let's just put this in someone's work stream. Like let's help them learn something exactly where they are in their emails and their texts and their phone calls, things like that. So kind of moving out of the clinical space and into the commercial and real world space where people are has been my career evolution over time. But all of that has been tied together with this, this common thread of trying to understand what are the exact words and like phrases and behaviors that lead to objective perceptions of empathy, increased engagement, retention, whether that be in treatment or in sales or in whatever human interaction. I'm just really interested in the linguistic aspects and the behavioral aspects of that and, and getting quite granular about it. Like 
psychologists know a lot of these things. And um, so kind of that cross-functional knowledge of bringing that over from the psychology space into new spaces has been, been where I've been most interested. So uh, at some level, I'm thinking with your name, you, you definitely uh, have psychology embedded in you <laughs> with a name like Grin. But I'm wondering, just let's go back before we get into the thick of it, is what was your path into psychology? And I frame this question because my daughter is about to do a master's in psychology uh, in St. Andrews. I'm very proud of that. And I'm interested to hear what your journey was into the field of psychology and becoming a psychologist. Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny because for those of people listening that know me, I actually like talk a lot and I'm really like extroverted and engaged. And I think most therapists don't have that temperament. They are more like absorbers and containers. Um, but I think I've just always been attracted to people and learning about people and hearing their stories. And that is what pulled me into it to begin with. Um, you know, in, in college, I did a double major in psychology and anthropology and a minor in theater. So it was like all of the people, <laughs> you know, things combined. So people sciences. Um, yeah. And anthropology is actually not too dissimilar from what I ended up doing in, in some ways, working on more of the population level, um, as well as working on the individual level. So um, I think if you have a passion for people and their stories, like it's a great field to go into. It was eventually hard for me once I learned, you know, what the important active ingredients are in therapy, which is not talking a lot and listening, you know, absorbing that many stories, um, listening to people for 40, 50 hours a week for, in my case, you know, 12, 15 years, eventually I got to the point where I was like, you know, I'm going to step away from the absorption mode and into more of this active teaching mode. So um, the only thing I'd say for folks considering psychology is, is just know that, yeah, you're, it's a lot. Like if you go in the clinical direction, a lot of absorption and stories and things like that. So um, for me, it was super important to have a diverse career in, in looking at different things. And I do think that's a great thing about a psychology degree is there's so many transferable skills. Um, so I think she can go wrong if she goes in that direction. <laughs> so true. One tends to think about the importance of empathy in the role of medicine, for example, doctors and bedside manners, which tend to go astray from the stress of the job and working 36 hours in a row. And for psychologists to be having to listen and absorb so many stories, there must be a big need for self-empathy as well to, to manage these types of stories, many which, you know, because you do a lot of work with trauma and, and some very difficult situations, they, they must be sometimes very difficult for psychologists to handle without having some sort of road to let them out. Yeah, it's interesting. They, they have done research on the disposition of therapists, not just psychologists, but therapists in general that succeed in the field. And the highly empathic people like Figley's research, things like that are, are the ones that burn out the fastest. So when you truly feel what another person feels 
and very much align like your longevity in the field is is i think they find like three to five years it's very short compared to the less empathic people so the sad fact is the more experienced psychologists that have been doing this a long time not only maybe they've mastered some form of self-empathy um, but more likely they actually have a bit of a barrier and have found ways to uh, listen and contain and listen with accuracy without full absorption into that. Um, and, and, and yeah, and I think uh, burnout is a very real thing for empathic people and, and having that self-compassion and self-empathy is, is part of it and, and knowing when, um, you know, knowing those signals and, and when it's too much. Um, I'm the leader of a group called Therapists in Tech, uh, which has about close now to 2,000 digital wow. mental health leaders and um, leaders in some of the most popular, you know, digital health apps today. And I will say that anecdotally, one of the commonalities across all of those digital health leaders is, is burnout from clinical, direct clinical work, that they have moved from that absorption phase into a, okay, I'm gonna work in tech, <laughs> better benefits, better like pay, still very challenging, um, but like, I don't, I don't have to be at the front lines anymore. Um, and we even did a survey of our, our, our group and, and found that I think, I, I'm gonna misquote the stat, but if something like 75% said they would be unwilling to do clinical work in, in addition to the strategy and clinical jobs that they're doing in those digital health spaces, uh, in part because of burnout. So, um, yeah, self-compassion, very important, but, but also I think, uh, if, if you're empathic, it's, it's hard to, to be in that space. Well, let's um, dig in on that a second, because it, it brings up this notion that empathy could be divided into two, to use your words. One is that you feel what someone else is feeling, mm -hmm. and the other one is you understand what someone else is experiencing or thinking. Cognitive, Com yeah. cognitive versus effective in the lingo, the jargon. Um, to what extent do you subscribe to cognitive only and how important is that within the context of empathy in in tech yeah oh this is a hard question in part because like i don't totally believe in that divide i mean it's like pretty cartesian like yeah I <laughs> so like is it effective is it um cognitive you know can you truly divide them out but i will say there are some what, what I've observed is there are skills-based things that you can do to improve empathy, where you can really like change a skill and that can get you about 80% of the way to felt empathy. And I'd say like felt empathy is something that is more like you truly are engaged with and trying to understand that other person. And you do things unconsciously, like you synchronize with them unconsciously, you start to feel things unconsciously. And that part is, is di more difficult to train. Um, so, so I kind of divide it into less so uh, effective and cognitive and more like trainable skills versus, um, I wouldn't even call it trait-based, but like just uh, relational, qualities of empathy um, that have to do with how two people together are coming into a relationship, not just one person having empathy and another like receiving it. Um, 
And what we focus on in, in the company that I've created is more of those skills. Like, how can we get people not necessarily to, to true accurate understanding or, or really liking the person across from them, and, and but how can we give them as many tools as possible to, to get to that point, um, to that jumping off point. Um, but yeah, I, I struggle with the split and, and I know that people talk about it a lot. And, uh, I, it's, I, I think about it a little bit differently, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you, I mean, you talk to people all day about empathy. I'm, I'm curious about what you have to say on that. Well, I have a, a pragmatic perspective, which is if I don't feel what you're feeling, there's no way you're going to teach me how to do that. It's sort of like teaching me to be sad or teaching me to be happy for you. Um, I can see you might be happy. I can see you might be sad and therefore have a line of inquiry to understand better why you're feeling sad and yeah. so on. And, and the fact that I may not feel your sadness, it, how much will that actually bear upon your perception of me being empathic with you? Does it take me crying if you cry? for you to believe that I'm being empathic? Right. And, and I, I'd say that's more like sympathy, right? Like sympathy is this like alignment in, in the feeling like this person's crying. So you're crying. And, and I think it actually can get in the way of and be problematic to, again, how I define empathy as accurate understanding. Um, because if you're feeling that um, and you assume that it's aligned, or that it's the same as what the other person is feeling, that, that can lead to a whole bunch of fraught interactions as well. Um, you know, in the 80s, I think empathy was talked about, like you're walking in someone else's shoes, like you're really feeling what they're feeling and that's empathy. And now like the more contemporary idea is like, how dare you assume you could be in their shoes? Like, you don't know their life. Like you can get very close to it and you can be curious about it. You can be open to it. Um, and you can have sympathy or pity or these other things that are maybe not, you know, as good, but um, the goal of the conversation isn't to be like, I feel what they feel, therefore I understand them. It's like, I can understand without necessarily having felt that, or I can show that I'm trying to understand without having necessarily felt that. And only they will know, like they're the ones in the, the, the seat to know, um, is empathy being felt? Am I being accurately understood? You, you don't get to decide that for them. So I think there is something about that, like crying with crying, where um, obviously it can feel really good with close friends, but for people that are less familiar, it can it can be like not an empathic experience. It can be like, well, wait, now now your feelings are suddenly like here, and like how do we, you know, I, I get, get out of this? Right. So then it yeah. becomes like a, a revolving plate, and now you're sad. Shit, I was I was sad. Now you're what is this? Now I need to be empathic with you, and and we just change the baton somehow. It, it, it makes me really weigh in on this idea of, of how to qualify empathy. There's mm. the empathy I'm attempting to emit. So I might be an organization that wishes mm -hmm. to be empathic with my stakeholders, my suppliers, my clients. So I wish to be empathic with them. So what can I do to be more empathic? Make some decisions that are, are better for the people I'm aiming my empathy at. That doesn't mean that the recipient will at all be cognizant of or aware of an idea of empathy. And on the other hand, the empathy being relied on on the individual in front 
means it's, it's hyper-subjective, whether empathy is being perceived. Right. So how do you even go about thinking about measuring, qualifying empathy? Is that something that can be done? Uh, well, certainly, yes. I mean, you can have, uh, and, and part of how we've done it in the research setting is by having outside objective raters that are neither the receiver or center of empathy rate the empathy of the interaction and compare that to the ratings of those that are the subjective and then the um, skills-based objective ratings. Like, did you do the things that we said that we know are empathic? Like, are you doing those? And then was empathy expressed or felt from, from the receiver and then and this outsider person having ratings? So, so, you know, those are certainly, it can be um, measured in that respect. Um, but yeah, I think you're you're getting to something a little bit uh, bigger than that. And I, I would say that historically, I, I do think this has shifted, like what companies and what people find important. And I'd say in this particular moment in time, uh, there is more emphasis on the subjective. There is more um, that like, for example, I'll just use like from the DEIB perspective, like, if you are, um, you know, changing your logo to a rainbow on uh, for pride, is that empathy? Is it being expressed and felt? Like, do people feel like you're representing and understanding their needs? Like, maybe, maybe not. And and I'd say dialogue at, at this point right now is saying actions are important, like more so than representation. And do, are you actually affecting that population, understanding them? meeting their needs is a more accurate measure of like understanding and empathy than than the expressed version of it that may or may not land well so that that final bit of checking and being like did i understand you am i getting your needs but like is do you feel empathy i, I think in in this moment right now it is super important um and and that corporations need to be thinking about not just offering workshops, not just like training managers and skills, but doing that full loop of like, did you, did it work? <laughs> like, is this being felt? Like, are people subjectively feeling heard and understood? I think where it goes into problems is, is maybe what you were alluding to this hyper subjectivity of like, well, nothing can land like with it, like it are, you know, there has to be a middle ground like of the attempt and, and the reception um, for sure. Uh, but again, like when we trained therapists, um, you know, 10, 20 years ago, uh, they didn't even look, they never measured if patients felt empathy. It was all focused on what did the therapist do? Um, like, did they do the empathic things? If they did them, empathy was expressed in this therapy session, like, or in this medical session. And there was no, like, uh, check on that. So, so I, I see that changing in the research field as well, that there's uh, a new attention to how is it received? Yeah. I mean, Jonathan Haidt talks about the difference or the, to the gap between intention and impact. Exactly. I think that's a, a very valuable or valid way of expressing the difference. So I, I'm thinking now, um, first of all, psychology in the UK, where I'm based, hmm. is, um, 
it's very difficult to find an available psychologist. The, yeah. the uh, research seems to show that it's one of the fastest growing uh, things to study at university. Uh, it's the fourth most popular overall in the UK. Uh, getting um, a therapist is difficult. The number of people requiring therapy is, uh, seems to be on the rise. And at the same time, according to certain literature and studies, we have a dearth of empathy in society, a, it seems, self-professed amongst students at university of themselves. So it's not just the others, it's, it's of myself. Do you feel that there is a link in what's the narrative that goes on in Grin's mind as to why these two things are happening at the same time? Yeah. Um, I mean, this, the, the social and political problems that are leading to a lack of, of empathy, I don't think can be solved by therapists. <laughs> so um, more therapists um, in, you know, a rotten barrel aren't going to make it <laughs> okay. But at the same time, we have to be realistic and say, well, people are suffering and like, they don't have support and like, how, how are we going to approach this? But I think it, it needs to be both like a societal shift towards structures that are more empathic uh, in combination with things like healthcare and, you know, psychologists coming on the front. But, you know, we saw this with COVID. Um, all of the therapists are listening to, and, and I was a therapist during COVID uh, in the very beginning and um, worked with first responders, but we're listening to the same stories over and over again. And it's important to witness and to help people, but at a certain level, we're all in that together. And until there can be other changes, like, you know, we can co-witness, we can empathize, we can be there together through it. Um, but will it like solve the problem? Will it lead to a, a transformation? You know, I think that's kind of to be determined. And, and there are books on this too. You know, there's very, this is a very divisive um, topic, I should say, you know, there's, um, I forget who wrote the book that we've had a hundred years of psychotherapy and the world's getting worse. Like, it's just like, there's, there's people that like definitely go on either way. And I certainly think like the middle path is best. Um, again, with my approach and, and creating empathic, I just really wanted to move out of the therapy room and say like, look, there are waiting lists. Like there is a tremendous amount of like backlog. Everyone can learn to listen with empathy. Like there's simple skills, like open-ended questions, like repeating back what you heard. Like that doesn't have to happen in a, a therapy office that can happen at work that can happen with your friends. So like, for me, I'm like, let's try to get more people access to some of these ways of thinking and feeling that don't involve the lift and the access restrictions of going into a therapy office. Could we all learn to listen you know, better to each other in our day-to-day -day life? And I, I think that's kind of where I've started with the problem um, in combination to um, you know, building my business in ways that I think are empathic for a, for a larger society. Um, so, so I kind of try to approach it in, in two ways, but um, and, and just to be clear, we have the same problem here in the U S so it's, it's not just the UK that's, that's having that. And uh, we have a real shortage right now, um, 
of, of mental health specialists, therapists uh, across the board. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I was listening to some podcast might have been Jordan Peterson dissecting the or at least analyzing critiquing the notion of this uh, the expansion of the DSM and I think that's part of the the big uh, divide or the element that's rather controversial is the the notion that is grown by some sevenfold or something since the very first time and that somehow we are creating the need for psychologists, if you will, by having so many more things that are diagnosticable that you end up with having a problem with too much or too little of the same trait. So everything at some level can end up being something that can be called a need to go see a therapist that I suppose is part of the, the big debate. Is that correct? Yeah. And, and, for context, I mean, the DSM is coming out of the US and we have a procedure-based reimbursement system. Um, and I think a lot of that was there, there was pull to create billing codes for every situation. Right. So I think as, as you know, they're, they're, those things go um, hand in hand, you know, diagnoses just in general, I think are a framework, right? Like they're a way to think about the world. And some people, when they get a diagnosis, they feel relaxed or anxiety you know, is reduced because they're like, there's a way for me to understand what I'm thinking and feeling. And in that respect, I think it's very useful. And in general, I think therapists can help with that. Like, it doesn't have to be through the diagnostic framework. It can be through any way. Like, here's a way to think about what's happening and suddenly things become more digestible and, and okay. I think, yeah, the more medicalized side of it needed to create a lot of things that we could bill for and reimburse to the extent that like, you know, we have Z codes in America where it's like parent child conflict of X nature is like something I can put on a bill. you know, it's very specific when you get into ICD-10 and they want to have overlap. So I, yeah, again, uh, at, at this moment in time, there are a lot of um, pressures on the medical field and the medicalization of, of therapy, but from Stepping back from that, I, I do think it can be helpful for people to kind of normalize or be like, wow, there's a group of people, they think similarly to me, like if we talk about neurodivergence, like getting a diagnosis of ADHD or autism can be transformative for people because they're like, oh my gosh, like I, I think differently and here's ways to do that. But the pathologizing of that or like the over-medicalization of that, I think is where you run into some problems um, and like to your extent, like create like is everything a is everything a everything. that we experience in our life? Is that a useful way to approach things? Like pr probably not. Well, like grief and other things that are kind of normal. Right? Yeah, they get 
um, pathologized. And it's like, this is a, a process that we should be going through. And yeah. uh, you can't medical, it shouldn't be medicalizing grief. Shouldn't be. No, we need exactly. to, to deal with it. And Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections, I think does a great job, a valiant job of looking at, at the pharmacological approach to so many of these maladies. Moving on to a less controversial topic. Um, and, and really getting into the thick of what you are up to at Empathic AI. Tell us uh, about Empathic AI. What are you trying to achieve? I mean, generally, it must be about generalizing empathy. That's right. I, I want it. I mean, the, the ultimate goal, I think, is for people to be able to, to learn empathy right where they are in their workflows, in their work streams, um, to prove listening. And, and then from a big vision perspective, we'd like to go beyond empathy and kind of be like this layer on all communications to almost auto-tune to any communication style. Maybe you're overly empathic and you need to be more assertive, or maybe you're in a situation where you need to be more dynamic. Um, we'd like to be that kind of um, almost like a deep fake speech layer where we can provide you uh, suggestions that are based with evidence around the goal that you're trying to get to and let you have the option to, to talk in different ways and engage in different ways without you having to go to a workshop, without you being in therapy, um, just as a communication like support. Um, so that's our vision. Um, you know, on a, a commercial sense, we believe that this will lead to increased trust and loyalty. So we have a lot of folks that are interested in you know, learning about empathic or integrating with empathic to improve speech for customer service for, um, you know, resolving complaints um, in HR with managers talking to employees in healthcare, you know, there's a lot of pragmatic um, ways to, to apply this that, that impact, you know, business outcomes. Um, but yeah, from a more idealistic sense and from my research, I'm, I'm just trying to teach as many people these skills as possible in a way where they can actually apply it immediately um, and, and kind of get that behavioral shaping over time. Um, so, you know, ideally you wouldn't use our product forever. You would use it, improve in some skills and go from there. But what we find is that even the most empathic people, even folks like myself, um, you know, speech patterns, behavior patterns, unique kind of constant reminders until that becomes muscle memory. Um, so you could work on improving one skill with empathic, and then you could start to work on another and, and go from there. And, and we have um, 56 different behaviors that we detect and correct for. Um, so I use the word empathy, but that breaks down into many different con constructs and that are involved in that. Right. So my understanding about tech and empathy, or at least maybe AI and empathy, is that often it's really necessary to have good context and data yeah. on the person to whom you're communicating in order to be able to create that notion of empathy. So mm. um, that, I mean, at, the, at some level, the ability to have the right context all the time with everybody you're ever interfacing with is way too big an idea for any single individual without the augmentation of a machine. So just tell us how the, the software works your system works with a company. Let's say I'm a big, uh, you know, big beauty or pharmaceutical company, and I have many, many, many millions of clients. 
and or doctors or pharmacists or hairdressers or whatever. What what is the how does it work and how do you integrate it into a company? Sure. Um, so the commonality with all the companies we work with is that they have some form of conversational data, whether that be a um, audio recording on a Zoom meeting uh, or a recording in real life or a chat or um, some sort of emails, things like that. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at what actually is happening uh, in the conversations. We're ingesting that through our API, which processes it through these 56 different models that are detecting all the good and bad things that you can say and do. And then saying, okay, like this sentence or this section, this had high empathy. Here was the skill that you used. Like you used collaboration and partnership. You ask permission before providing advice. Uh, you ask an open-ended question. You did this and this. Here's your highlights. Here's your lowlights. And here's some areas to improve. So it's kind of like conversational AI where we're like ingesting those conversations, identifying all the bits, and then telling you, here's the skills that you used. And then we go one step further to say, okay, if this isn't a real-time scenario, let's say you're texting your friend or you're on a, you're a customer service agent supporting someone that we can take that sentence you were about to say, run it through those engines before you send it and give you options. Like, hey, you were about to do this, like here's some ways to improve that, to improve the outcome or don't send that, call a meeting. We give behavior-based prompts as well. So some of it is speech transformation, like try this differently. And other times we're actually saying like, no, like don't send that at all. There's no way to improve that. And you really need to meet with this person. And here's some of like, the ways that you can do that. We have we have one detection that works for particularly toxic speech that's funny. It has like a gradient, right? Of of this can be saved to like just you can't, there's no way to improve this and don't send it. And a lot of times as it's approaching that threshold, we're asking people, you know, use I statements, express what you need right now, like talk about how you feel. So there are these like kind of therapeutic concepts that are integrated as we get towards that end that again, are much more behavioral than something like, let's take out the word guys and make this gender inclusive. Like we really wanna work on shaping these interactions in a behavioral way that goes far beyond like making things PC or replacing certain words, like entire detections of, um, the skills, the behaviors, the speech. Really understanding the, the flow of the conversation as opposed exactly. to the tr trigger of a word. Exactly. So I, I need to go back to then what you mentioned before about how evaluation is happening, because you mentioned how we used to look at how the clinicians or the psychologists were evaluated for being empathic, but we didn't ask the customer or the patient in this case. So in, in this, what I hear from you is you're able to evaluate the outputs, but you're not going to be able to measure the, um, the, in, or the, the, the incoming empathy as to how a patient or sorry, a customer is, yeah. is experiencing it. Well, that, it's so interesting because most of our pilots actually do do um, correlations with outcome data. So we'll look at, um, for example, we're working with insurance claims right now and we'll take all the most empathic and least empathic things said by a particular agent. And then we'll correlate that with MPS or CES score and be like, here are your top performers. And now you can clone them because you know what they said that led to this score. Like it's mm. it's not a black box anymore. Like 
Um, and actually in the remote like conversion to hybrid work, this is becoming an increasing problem where it used to be that, um, again, I'll just take that insurance situation, like a supervisor would maybe walk around and listen to their agents talk or in customer service as well, something like you'd be able to have this direct supervision, but everyone's at home, conversations are, are not um, accessible. And then the burden from a, like a quality assurance perspective and from a training perspective of reviewing all of those recordings or transcripts at scale is so tremendous that I think people do rely on NPS, CES, other kind of outcome data to be like, well, this is how people are doing because um, it's just too much to take the conversational data in. And we're at this moment with AI that we can process that. We can look at that. We can break that down for me, for you, make it digestible, give you a dashboard that says like, Hey, look at these individuals or look at these teams. Here's what they're doing. Here's what relates to this. Um, so typically with our customers, we are looking for outcome data that they provide. Um, and what's interesting about that from an empathy perspective is that every company is slightly different as far as like the measuring stick for outcomes. Of course. Yeah. So like we, we have these higher level uh, metrics as well to compare companies like zero to 10 empathy, collaboration, partnership, like different things and a six for one company um, may be totally different from a six from another company because all that matters is how that relates to outcomes. So even though we can compare them across the board, they're going to know their threshold for, all right, we need to get everyone to this particular mark because just being that empathic or like is enough for us to get the outcome that we desire. So we go through a process at the moment in which we're hoping to speed up and as, as we become a bigger company, but of basically establishing that in the pilot of taking their data, giving them their scores, saying these are the ones that look like they're related to outcomes. Here's some of the things. And like, this is your line. Like you want to be trying to hit this mark um, in performance to get the outcomes that you're interested in with retention, patient satisfaction, whatever it is. Um, so we do have that outcome data, but it's it's at this moment coming from the customers and not us. As we get bigger and aggregate and learn more, I think we as a company may be able to have what what might be called like an empathic score or some way to actually be like, no, there there is there is a standard and a benchmark um, that you should be going for in your industry. Yeah, I mean um, that'll certainly be different by industry as well for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like to your point about like the, you were mentioning beauty and hairdressers, like that's like such a sensitive issue and like having empathy in moments where someone used a hair dye and their hair fell out, you know, is like a very different moment than I need to return my product. Like, where is it? Like, it's not, it's not comparable. And we find that we like our, our sweet spot for performing is in those more sensitive interactions. Again, insurance claims, we're dealing with people that just had a car accident. You don't Health want to care. have, exactly, hospital care. You don't, you don't want to have someone not listening in those moments. Like accuracy in those initial moments of the conversation and showing that you listen has like so much to do with trust and loyalty. And if you miss that, um, you know, it, it's not good. Versus if you miss it in other scenarios that are less high stakes, uh, probably not as big of a deal. But so that's kind of the, the where we're targeting is to, to help folks um, learn very quickly to be empathic at scale without doing a ton of training. You mentioned bigger company. Uh, can you tell us, I don't know what you can tell us about how big you are and, and where you are in the uh, yeah. entrepreneurial adventure? 
Yeah, so we're a seed stage company. I just closed um, our seed round in June of this year, 2022. So congratulations. Um, thank you. We're about 15 full-time employees. We'll, we'll be growing over the next two years with that. Um, but you know, I've been working at the forefront of this for 15 years. This is my third startup. So in some ways, our, our small company is performing like a bigger one. Like we have large customers, you know, um, already out the gate because this is a very specialized, you know, skill. And there's only so many people that are working on AI empathy at scale. Um, but yeah, we're, we're young and we're, we're only growing um, with every year. So uh, that's exciting. And um, yeah, I, we'll, we'll see where we go in the next two years, but, but so far um, it's, it's been awesome to, to grow a company from, from nothing uh, to seeing uh, where we're at today. What would you say has been the biggest learning for you going from the first two? I think one of them is Empathy Rocks, I can't remember, but mm -hmm. from, from the first two to the third, what, what, what is the sort of the lever that you pulled on that said, well, this, is, this is warp speed or this is the better path? I think getting out of this is this is a horizontal product um ultimately like we we have to find our niche in some ways like kind of land expand in terms of our go-to-market but i think the big learning is um this isn't for one group this isn't just for therapists um this isn't just for psychologists or doctors like anyone can learn to do this and we if we can integrate into their conversations or where they're working we can help them. Um, so I think that's been my biggest learning because my first startup, Listen, which spun out of the, the university base, we really focused on training therapists uh, with accuracy, like very specific things. And we were really focused on fidelity and treatment fidelity. And um, I think just over time, I realized, you know, you can focus on adherence to like these kind of rules in this micro way, or you could work on common factors, like things like synchrony, rapport, relationship, and measure those. And those go to a much bigger audience than, than to therapists. So, so my biggest learning has been like kind of essentially ripping out everything I learned in academia, which is unfortunate. <laughs> and, and being like, look, let's let's get this bigger. Let's let's everyone can learn from this and and let's see which of these metrics really relate to outcomes. That, that are generalizable. Um, so, so that's when the biggest learning for me has been kind of pulling out of the micro and the niche and into a, a larger uh, sphere. And, and with that for me has come like a ton of learning as well about these different industries and, and finding out, and I'm sure you know this Minter, but like um, as much as there are specific differences, there's also a lot of commonalities and the way that we need to listen to folks and hearing the problems come up from managers and employees, from healthcare providers, from, you know, you name it, at the end of the day, a lot of the core like misses in these conversations come back to some of the same foundational concepts. Um, so, so that's been exciting for me and like a challenge and kind of pulling out of the, the, the research base and in, into the startup world. Yeah, the, the human relationship is kind of human. Makes me <laughs> yeah. I want to want to just dig in on one little piece before I get the last question, which is just um, you mentioned like a six versus a six in one company versus another. It could be different. It makes me think of the difference of cultures that 
two mm. companies in the same industry will have, and maybe even a vocabulary difference and a right. method of, of management and such. So to what extent do you have any need to adapt your process and or software to adjust to the individual cultures of the companies you're dealing with? Um, that is a super good question. And if you had asked me that, like, I'd say six months ago, I'd say, oh, like none, you know, we're taking everything and it's applying and it's working. And now what we're learning as we're integrating is especially in the healthcare space, there are um, not so much, I wouldn't say adaptations on the AI detection and correction end, but there's a real um, mandate and requirement around AI ethics that we don't train on medical data and conversations and generalize that to other places. Like I'm sure you've read in the news, like the Loris AI crisis text line dilemma where a company somewhat similar to ours, like trained their models and on crisis text line data and then commercialized that into sales. So what we're learning is from an adaptation standpoint, if we do need to alter a model that those need to be, um, we need to have extreme diligence around containment of the data and the training data, data traceability, and just be super attentive to AI ethics as we grow and expand. And um, just, just to make sure everyone knows, we do not like train on and commercialize medical data, um, but because of that, that's led to some interesting dilemmas around model adaptation and training, like what happens if we do take one of our um, models that, that we've developed in-house, like through our gamified flywheel and, and training, and then we bring it to a medical company, we need to alter it somewhat, but we can't pull that back into the company, like that needs to remain there. Um, so that I think is our, our, our next real challenge is learning like what markets can be commercialized and we can train on the data and continue to improve the models and what really needs to stay specific to particular groups and and you know we respect that of course so um, at the forefront of our minds is ai ethics and protection of the consumer and protection of the persons whose data we're learning from and training on and we really take that seriously at our company um, we have a very robust training data set to begin with in terms of different cultures groups races genders you name it so we're not um, skewing uh, towards overly correcting one group and we have ways in our API currently to assess whether um, we are doing that for a particular group. And again, that depends somewhat on the data that we're allowed to, to, to analyze, but um, it's really, really important for us um, as far as model adaptation. By industry, I'd say that's less of an issue as far as like, can we detect uh, reflective listening in different industries, even if they're using different words? Yeah. Like, it's not a problem. We don't have to retrain the models, um, but it's more of just respect out of if we do need to retrain, how do we think about that and how do we keep the data? How many languages are, are you currently uh, allowing for? I assume you're mostly in North America. Yeah, we're mostly in, in North America. And right now all of our models are in English, but we are partnering. Um, I mean, there's huge, there's just massive, by the day, there are massive advances in translational knowledge as far as languages are concerned. So once we've, um, I mean, honestly, it, all it would take for us to switch to another language is having a customer ask us and we'll do it. Like, so 
retraining and some of the idioms, you know, the nuances, things like that, that may need to occur. But most of our, again, most of our things, like, for example, we have a, a synchrony metric, right, that looks at how are two people shaping in their language style over time. That's not language specific because it's looking at similarities in the speakers. It doesn't matter what language they use for us to be able to detect if that empathy is occurring. Um, things, you know, I, I take cultural adaptation really seriously. So as soon as we would like have that customer that would say that, we would assess that and like evaluate it with that customer and make sure that all of our models are indeed working for that language. But there's a lot of companies that offer translational um, you know, text-based stuff as, as far as like taking our existing things and, and moving it. But, but I agree that we would need to probably do adaptation to the culture and um, have it be more specific. And how much of your technology is proprietary? Because I know that there's now a lot of off-the-shelf SaaS, cloud-based AI machines, data yeah. sets. How much are you in the proprietary field? 100%. I mean, that's... Like the only reason that I started this company is because our labeled data has to do with the behaviors. Like right. we're not using sentiment analysis. We're not using, and like, could you imagine mm -hmm. us using sentiment analysis with insurance claims? People are, which, which by the way, people do, but uh, you know, they're calling up and they're saying, I got in a car accident. Like I was on the like highway and then I hurt my, you know, the sentiment analysis is like red, red, bad, bad, bad. The conversation isn't bad. That's just a bad topic. Like same thing happens in healthcare. We need to be coding the behaviors and the language and the way that that person is going about it. We code the how the conversation is happening, not so much the what. Like the what of, of, of the car accident is the thing that's pinging these other off the shelf models. And we're saying like, how did you do that? What was the behavior you used? What is the relationship like? Certainly we can augment our models with things like talk time, I don't know, like other stuff that I've, I've seen other companies do, but that's not where our um, differentiator is or our mode is. Having therapists um, label our data through, through Empathy Rocks, which I didn't really get to talk about, but we have this training game for therapists where they earn continuing education credits for responding to statements with empathy and they rank each other's statements. That's where we kind of avoided our cold start problem in AI and, and went out the gates having data knowing what skills. And now we have a team of, I want to say 15 or 17 expert data labelers. So that when we do get like a medical customer, for example, we can create a, a model for them that is proprietary, that is theirs, that uses our, our base, but that we've adjusted. Um, so it's all, I mean, I think that's our differentiator is it's proprietary. It's um, specifically it's all, all in the labeling. It's in the labeling. Yeah, it's in the labeling. And it's in like, do you know, um, what are those ingredients you're looking for? And a lot of the out of the off the shelf stuff is based on more simple psychological concepts of like good and bad words and, and not on good and bad behaviors related to their outcomes and like how you phrase things. Well, I, I mean, I, I know it's very complex, but you, you know, I'm just thinking of the word shit. So in French, there is another one some words that are used for everything uh, even the f word and you know it, oh oh shit oh shit you know or different ways of saying it the same word mean very different things and and oh, understanding sure. that nuance is such a difficult thing um <clears throat> grin time is of the essence i've taken up a lot of your time thank you for coming on the show 
give us an idea how someone can get in contact with you, uh, follow what you're up to, your writings, and of course, figure out more about your entrepreneurial startup, Empathic AI. Yeah, I mean, the easiest to, is to go to our website, Empathic AI. Um, you can write us an email too at hello at Empathic AI if you have questions. Let me, let me just say it's Empathic, starting with an M. M P A. Empathic, yeah. Dot AI. Dot AI. Thank you. Yes. Um, and and I, I'd say that's the, the best way to learn about, about us uh, and uh, get in contact. Yeah. Sounds good. Many thanks, Gren. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Minter. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dialogue. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
how much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.